Good morning. This morning I would like to focus our attention for a few minutes on one paragraph of our church covenant that the elders have crafted through the last few months and we've placed before the members to uh, asking them to uh, discuss it and accept it, which we'll find out uh, in a couple of weeks. But paragraph six says, we will work together to maintain a faithful gospel ministry in this church by participating in its worship programs, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Now, in order to properly understand what those words are all about and why they're put in the place that they're put, I'd like to draw your attention to one verse from 2 Corinthians. We're not going to look at this this morning, so you don't need to turn to the passage. I just want to draw this one verse out of it. But it happens that the context of, of this verse is that the Apostle Paul had decided to raise money from the Gentile churches outside of Judea that were now in, are now in places like Turkey and Macedonia and places like that. He wanted to raise money to help the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, the where the first believers were, because there was a famine in Judea. And he uh, had announced to these churches he was going to take an offering at a later date, and he wanted them to gather sums together that then he would pick up and he would take to Jerusalem for the help of the poor who were there. And in writing to the Corinthians, he, he says this, speaking of the Macedonian churches as an example, he says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means... Of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, that is, the care for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, I want to just underline those last few words. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I want to draw your attention to that verse because in many ways our church covenant in the, the paragraph that I uh, printed up there is, is meant to reflect the emphasis of that verse, that we must first give ourselves to God through our participation in the life and ministry of a local congregation of believers, and then we give of our resources to God. So this morning I'd like to ask the question, what does it mean to give ourselves to God? What does it mean to give ourselves to God? When it says that they first gave themselves to the Lord. Why isn't it enough for me to stand up this morning and just say, well, you ought to give money to the church and say it as nicely and, you know, as convincingly as I can, and that would be it, and I could sit down. Why wouldn't that really be sufficient? That's not the New Testament emphasis. It's not the way they approach things. How do we give ourselves to God? Well, we can gain some insight into this by looking at Jesus' teachings in Luke chapter 14, and that's what I'd like to read this morning as a scripture reading, Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Listen carefully as I read. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, 
desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he has whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you for carrying us safely through this last week and bringing us again to this new day at the start of a week when we can gather together and we can worship you this morning. And we think of that time when Jesus was in Galilee and he looked out and saw the people on the hillside and we're told that he saw them as like sheep without a shepherd. And the next words say that as a result, he began to teach them many things. And... Lord, we find ourselves in the same condition today as we take our own earthly pilgrimage through this barren wilderness of the world. We find that we, left to ourselves, are incapable of making our way and understanding what it is we ought to think and do. And we ask that you would, as Jesus did in that time in the past, you would be our teacher yourself. We pray that this morning as we look into your word, you would open our minds to understand what the scriptures say, particularly in this passage, and you would move our hearts to obey it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, Grace, we talk a lot about discipleship, and the word disciple means pupil or learner. So a person who is a disciple is simply one who has attached himself or herself to Jesus to uh, learn from him. And Jesus said that the whole purpose of a local church was to be a source of discipleship for people, a place where people can become well-instructed and devoted followers of Jesus. And that is, uh, a church is meant to be a place, and I don't just mean on a Sunday morning like this, but I mean in small groups and all of the things and relationships that we uh, develop as a result of what we do here on Sunday mornings, that we would uh, help people to develop a growing grasp of Jesus' teachings, and that that grasp of his teachings would be accompanied by a heartfelt desire uh, to put them into practice, and that people would uh, do that in their daily lives. And this passage is key for that function that a church is all about, and that everything we do should be tested by, in that Jesus talked about discipleship. The heading in my Bible says, the cost of discipleship, over this particular paragraph. And Jesus here taught the very essence of what it means to be a follower of him. And he asserts that the cost of following him is so high that even your closest family, relationships, all those people whom you love, must become a distant second in comparison to your love for him. He said the cost of discipleship is so high that it means accepting any burden that God might give to you or any responsibility that uh, he gives you as you go through life. He said it's just like a man building a tower. You better uh, assess carefully whether you have the means to complete it or else people are going to call you a quitter. 
And he says it's like a, a king, when he stirs up conflict against another king, he better uh, be sure whether he can actually win or people are going to call him a loser. And in fact, the last sentence is, is sort of the key to it all. It's As Jesus often did, he nails it home with one sentence that says it all. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce, that is, give up, everything that he has cannot be my disciple. And that is quite an astonishing demand. The context in which Jesus made it is even a little more surprising because I want you to note that verse 25 starts with these words. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me. Usually, the other contexts in the Gospels where Jesus' call to discipleship is made clear, it's made to his closest followers, the apostles, or even within them, the smaller circle of Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He tells them what it means to be his follower as they're growing and developing in their uh, discipleship, in their following of him. But, but here is one place in the Gospels where it says that he was speaking to the multitudes. Great crowds followed them, and he was teaching them. And it was in that context with all of those listeners that he gave his call to discipleship. He turns to the crowds, and he makes crystal clear what it is he means And he's speaking to little children and casual listeners and committed disciples and even people who are in opposition to him who are among this multitude of people standing there. And it's like he he rolls back the curtains and he says, let me give you a panoramic view of what this is going to mean for you if you actually accept me and accept my teachings. My object is to gain your exclusive devotion in life. If you become my follower, I will ask you to give up your agenda in life, whatever your greatest hopes are, your greatest dreams that you harbor for yourself, I will ask you to give up those things and to accept instead my agenda for your life. And that is a breathtaking requirement. And the breadth of Jesus' demand, I think, should be sobering. In fact, it, it might stun you. Any one of you who does not give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus calls you to give yourself to him if you are a believer. This means that you and I uh, are called to be willing to say everything that I have and everything that I am belongs to God ultimately. It all came from him. Every resource I've been given in my life, whether it's my mind, my temperament, my background, my abilities, my liabilities, and everything that I've ever gained in life as a result of those resources that he gave me internally, like all of my relationships, all of my money, all of my responsibilities, all of that comes from God ultimately and belongs to him. And he has lent it to me for a short time, and he gives them to me to use Use for him during this short period of my earthly stay on earth. And being his follower means that I am called to acknowledge right now that all I am and all I have belongs to him and all that I can do is manage what he has given to me in order to maximize my impact for his purposes. Now I want to ask what would it be like for you and I to choose from the heart to do that, to live by this conviction and and the corresponding uh, resolution that We are just called to manage the things we've been given in order to serve him. What would need to happen 
inside of us and in our relationships for us to, um, to understand that this is not a demand, but in fact is a, a gracious invitation from the Lord of the universe to do what is in ultimately our best interests anyways. To realize, as the famous martyr missionary Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. For that to happen, there are three things I want to think about briefly for a few minutes. First, you have to have the relationship that Jesus extends. Uh, Secondly, you have to understand the commitment that Jesus asks. And thirdly, you have to make the choices that Jesus directs. So let's think first about the relationship. In, In order to respond from the heart to these words that Jesus said, as strong as they are, you need to first have the relationship that Jesus extends to you. Now, I mean by this a couple of things that are important to understand. One is that giving to God your whole person, which this is about, giving to God everything that you are and everything that you have is um, different from receiving something from God, namely eternal life. There are many passages which Jesus offers to us, this free gift and, and when we receive eternal life by faith, it is something being done to us, inside of us. There's something being given to us, and we simply receive it. That is, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And that's because preceding these words, there must be some grasp of what we call a relationship with God. The fact is, because of sin, the Bible tells us we are guilty and lost. And though it's hard for us to accept One of the things that must precede a person becoming a Christian is an understanding that there is nothing they can do to change this condition in which they find themselves guilty and lost. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of being good to other people. There's no amount of Bible reading, going to Bible studies, giving money to the church. There's no amount of things that we could do that would ever resolve the problem that morally the distance between ourselves and a God of infinite holiness is so great that we could never make it up. We're not like building a bridge, and we hope if we build it enough, we'll get to the other side where God is, and we hope that he accepts us. And when we realize that, it's kind of this weighty feeling of the magnitude of our problem. You mean, you're saying to me, the Bible is asserting that there's nothing I can do to change my relationship with God. And that is the fact. We realize the magnitude of the problem, then we can see that it is God himself who has done what needs to be done for us. This God of infinite holiness sent his son Jesus, who took on himself our sin. God has to hate and reject sinners by his very nature. He created us originally upright and holy, and we are the ones who have chosen to fall away from him. But the good news of Christ is that God sent his son to live for us and to die for us in our place so that when we trust in him, like we transfer our trust from ourselves to Christ, we are forgiven and cleansed and restored to God, not by our own works, but by his grace. And and so there's a passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And we have there this gracious invitation to come to him as though he extends his nail-pierced hands to every person who is a sinner and says, come to me, trust in me, embrace me, and you will find forgiveness and peace and relationship with God. The important thing to understand is that has to precede a call to follow Christ because if it doesn't, all you're doing is you're taking the demands of discipleship and figuring, well, if I do those things well enough, maybe in the end, he'll accept me. The second thing you have to understand about this is that that this call to discipleship in Luke chapter 14 has to be something that is subsequent or after the receiving of eternal life. They must go in that order. You have to receive life first, just as a child has to receive life as a gift from her parents before she can begin to live life. The fact is you have to be a Christian. You have to be a person who has received the life of God through faith in Jesus before you can begin to live that life out in a life of discipleship. It's only when a person has life from God that they can begin to give their life to God. It's only when you know that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ and that alone is sufficient for God to accept you that you can hear Jesus call to discipleship. And his call to discipleship is rather strong. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce, give up everything that he has, cannot be my disciple. So first you have to have the relationship which Jesus extends to you and only then can you begin to understand the commitment that Jesus asks, and that's what I want to think about secondly. What exactly is the commitment that Jesus is asking for in this passage? Now, in this passage, it's evident that Jesus is asking for what we might think of as total commitment, complete unreserved commitment to him. He who does not renounce all that he has, everything that he owns, that he thinks he possesses, cannot be my disciple. And and to express this concept of total commitment, Jesus uses hyperbole. I mean, he exaggerates. You might say, well, what do you mean Jesus exaggerates? That doesn't sound like a good thing to do, but let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, these words just by themselves raise the impossibility of what he's asking. In fact, not only are they impossible, they're against what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches us to love our family members. It even says, if you take the last phrase, his own life, it says in Ephesians chapter 5 that everyone naturally loves his own body. We take care of ourselves. We nurture and care for ourselves. We do that naturally because it's the only body we have. That's the way life is built. And yet Jesus says here, you have to hate those things. Now, it's obvious that Jesus is speaking in terms of comparison. Everything else in life, whatever it is, even the closest relationships that you can imagine, lose their importance in comparison to the devotion, the love, and the dedication we give to Jesus. Yesterday, I had an hour Skype conversation with a couple who are living in two different states. The girl grew up in the church here, and they want to get married. And uh, we were talking about uh, marriage, and I think one of the questions I'd ask in something they'd filled out was five reasons why you want to marry the person that you're marrying now. And, And we had a very good conversation, but what really struck me was these are people who three or four years ago, for both of them, in different places, different times, they came to faith in Christ in very clear terms, and it kind of radically changed some of their thinking and their doing it. One of the things the girl wrote was... I finally found a man 
who loves Jesus more than he loves me. And I thought, how many women are going to write that? You know, I mean, that, that's, like, that's like the death knell for most people to say that you love something else more than you love your wife. And yet, isn't that what Jesus is talking about? I mean, that's the, the essence of discipleship. Or just take the last verse, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Ask yourself, how could I ever renounce everything I have? And even if I did that one day, it's like I gave up everything, I acknowledged none of it belongs to me. What would guarantee that the next day I won't find out that there's something I still want to hold on to? These demands are presented in terms that are impossible for us, humanly speaking. They're, they're purposefully presented that way to give us a full understanding of what the true nature of discipleship is and that it's a demand that will follow us and dog our heels as we go through life, if we want it to, until the very end. Again, it's exaggeration. Everything in life belongs to him. He loans it to us for a short time of our lives. We renounce, to, to renounce all that we have means that we use it as though it won't really be ours, and we hold it like this so when it's asked for back, we can let go of it. That's what it means. And the commitment Jesus asked for is worded in such a way as to give us a taste of, of the magnitude of the request, the impossibility of fulfilling it in human terms. Being now in my 60s and having children and grandchildren, I can look back over life and I I recognize something that it it differs for different people based on your responsibilities and children and things like that. But for most people, the period of time from around the age 30 to around the age of 50 are the time of greatest responsibility you will ever have in your whole life. For some people, it's longer. For some, it starts earlier. But I mean, it's a period of greatest responsibility because if you have children and your your children are still at home and they're growing up and all the responsibilities of children growing up and figuring out how to deal with that, at the same time, many people in that age category have aging parents and they may require care that is both time-consuming and heart-wrenching. And so you've got these two things pulling you at once. And at the same time, that age period from approximately 30 to 50 is a time when most people, many people are moving up the ladder of the corporation that they're in or they're accepting more responsibilities or whatever it is they do, the older generation is moving off into retirement and they are taking on the responsibilities that their age requires. And so it's a time when I found, and I find for many people you feel pulled in all directions at once. And and you feel like you never have enough resources to do all of that. And your children, by the way, if they do their job, have this uncanny ability to really not care about your responsibilities. And they're going to make their own choices and do their own things regardless of whether you think it's a good idea. So it can get pretty hairy, I found. Now, I want you to think, suppose that you're in that category, 45 years old, and you have a 7-year-old daughter, and you come home at night and your 7-year-old daughter says... um, she cries and says, you know, Susie didn't like the way my hair was today and made fun of it, and the other girls laughed at me, and uh, you talk to her more, and she's feeling pressure of having to learn beyond the basics, which she learned the year before, and um, and she's crying because she doesn't want to go to piano lessons. She wants to go outside and play, and, and you think to yourself, you don't have any idea what responsibilities are. Come on, kids, you know, step up. Uh, let's, let's get real here. And if you're a wise parent, you don't really say that. <laughs> you think it, though, because you recognize 
the child is struggling with responsibilities at a seven-year-old level. I mean, that's what is real responsibility to her, and real pain in relationships is reflected in what she shared with you at that dinner table. But the fact is, she has no idea what the demands of, of, of adulthood will be. And, and if you're a wise parent, you think, well, I, I hope that what we're doing here is preparing her to accept the responsibility of an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old and a 50-year-old eventually. That's the best you can do. But you see, in one sense, what Jesus does is he's like taking a 7-year-old child and he's tearing back the cover to life and he's saying, this is what discipleship really means. This is what it will mean to be my follower. So therefore, any of you does not give up everything that he has. Can I be my disciple? It's a statement of the all-encompassing nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the fact is, when you read the words, can anyone do it perfectly? What's described here? Well, only the Son of God. Is it even realistic? Well, humanly speaking, it's not. Is it what Jesus requires of us? Is it the nature of what it means to live as a fully adult person? Absolutely. So what it means for us to give ourselves to God is to follow Christ in discipleship. It means to give up our agenda in life in order to adopt his agenda for our lives. We need first to have the relationship that uh, Jesus calls us into through Jesus Christ to receive the gift of eternal life freely. Because if we don't have that life, we're incapable of even beginning to think about what it means to follow Christ in discipleship. But but when you have the life of God and that stirring up inside of you, then your obedience is the gratitude of a well-loved child, and you are willing to think about what greater obedience would mean at whatever point you are. And the second thing we have to understand is that these demands of discipleship are beyond human capacity. They are not presented to us as something that is a list of things that you can do. And if you check off this list of things, you are a disciple. They are presented in terms like saying to a person, I want you to be a fully mature human being. Well, if you stop to think about it, a fully mature adult human being is a concept of perfection that none of us quite reach, although we continue to strive towards that as we move through life. And in the same way, We are called to grow up from childhood into adulthood. And so the last thing we have to think about in this passage is, what does it mean for us to make the choices that Jesus directs us to make? Well, to do that, I want to look one more time at the church covenant, if you could put that that up, this sixth paragraph. We will work together to maintain a faithful gospel ministry in this church by participating in its worship programs, discipline, and doctrines. And then, second sentence, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, the spread, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. The first one gives, is about giving ourselves to God. The second one is about giving our resources to God. They go in that order based on the fact that we must first give ourselves to the Lord and then, by the will of God, give to his purposes out of our resources. And the first sentence, the, 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 what you need to underline in thinking is the word participating That's the key. What a person is saying who is seeking to live a Christian life in the context of the new community that God creates, which is a local church, according to Scripture, is that they're saying, I will participate 
in the church life as a family member. Our church covenant is not meant to be a complete description of everything that discipleship means because this is the only complete description of everything that discipleship means, and it's a little hard to get your mind around the whole of the Bible at once. And so what we're seeking to do is just give those categories of what discipleship involves. It involves seeking to build relationships that are healthy and redemptive. It means seeking to live a holy life. And it means, according to this, seeking to live in participation with God's people. If you think about it, what this paragraph does is it doesn't give the nature of discipleship everything that it's going to mean. It gives the context in which discipleship will be experienced. And the context is a local church. That's the context in which, according to the New Testament, God calls a Christian to grow up, to learn, and to participate in his purposes. The church is the family in which we are birthed to life, and it's the place in which we're called to live for God. And as we move through life, we may find ourselves moving from uh, being one of the youngest children to growing up and gaining more responsibilities, and, and that's what it means to follow Christ. And that's what the church covenant is about. We will work together to maintain a faithful gospel ministry in this church. And we'll do it in just some of the ways listed, but it's this participation that really matters. You know, uh, this is not saying that every single thing every Christian does has to be focused on the local church. I I don't think that's true. That's not what Scripture says. It's not meant to limit the way in which you express your discipleship. Many people who are a part of a church go on and they have a ministry outside of the church, whether it's in their neighborhood or where they work or or in some other kind of way. It's not that every single thing we do is focused on the church. It's that a church is meant to be the home to which we return in the evening and the table at which we sit and are fed. And it's out of that that whatever else we do for the rest of our week and the rest of our lives is done. The local church is meant to express our primary responsibility, not our only responsibility, but our primary responsibility, which is to the family in which we are a part, at which we are fed at the family table. And it's that a life of discipleship is shaped and enhanced and used through our participation with other people in a church. So let me just step back and say, what is this church covenant all about? What we've done is we've crafted something that, that we would like people to consider as a way for us to bind ourselves together as members of this church. And, and we've noted in the past, and if you've been in some of our small groups, this was covered rather thoroughly, but the idea is that we've always had, people have made commitments to be members here. There was a list of six things, but the fact is, is people would look at that list of six things and say yes and sign it and turn it in, and we never talked about it again. Nobody could remember what they were. This is meant to be something that we keep before us as this is what we commit ourselves to live for and how we want to express ourselves in discipleship as Christians. Now, why are we doing this? I have to tell you, we live in unprecedented times. And I don't say that lightly because I've always been kind of sick of Americans who don't think about history at all. They just think that what we're doing right now is obviously the most important thing. And everybody who went before us is just kind of benighted. They didn't really know anything. And that's not true. All the generations of humanity have shared the common human nature that is experienced in different ways. And the nature of sin has shown up in every generation in various ways. We're not really different than those who have gone before us, even though 
We have tremendous advantages of technology and all of the things that it brings to us. But the fact is, given all of that, we do live in very unique times right now. I, I just got back from the Balkans. I was there for three weeks traveling and meeting with Christian workers. And um, when I left, I, I didn't plan my trip for this reason at all. But when I left, I thought, finally, I'm going to have three weeks of respite from the news. Like, I won't have to listen to what's going on with Hillary and Donald, you know, for the next three weeks. And uh, it was like a relief. I got on the plane to go to Zurich, and I oh, this is great, you know. It, the fact is, in 1998, I happened to have been in Albania. can't remember who was with me, but it was when uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment trial occurred in the Senate. And at that time... I never knew what happened because there was no news in Albania. Uh, the television was all Italian. I couldn't understand it, and few people had a television. So it was when I got on the plane to come back that I got a newspaper and found out what had happened. And I thought, this will be great. You know, if only I could stay a few more weeks, I could come out and find out what happened, you know, with the whole thing. <laughs> but let me tell you, times have changed in incredible ways. My wife and I couldn't communicate years ago when I went there. We could FaceTime anytime we wanted now. I can send emails. I can send text messages to people. I sent pictures to the staff every day and notes of what I wanted them to do that day and all kinds of things. That's a joke, by the way. I didn't do that. But what happened is everywhere I went, Macedonia, Albania, Kosovo, every single country, everyone that I talked to wanted to know about the election. Everyone, German missionaries, people from the UK, uh, missionaries from South America, El Salvador that I spent quite a bit of time with in Macedonia, um, all the people in the churches, they wanted to know who I was going to vote for <laughs> and what I thought of the two candidates. And mostly I just smiled and, you know, never really gave my opinion. I just wanted to know what they thought. And what I found out was they knew, they know so much more than most people here know. They have assessed completely which of our uh, news corporations are, in their view, biased or not biased, and what they hold to and why they hold to it and who they want. It happens just for a little bit of information. And in Kosovo, they love Hillary Clinton because Bill bombed the Serbs back in 1998, <laughs> you know, when they attacked Kosovo. And so there's a statue of Bill Clinton in Pristina. I had my picture taken underneath the statue of Bill Clinton. <laughs> But in Macedonia and Albania, I found out they don't like Hillary Clinton. They all want Trump. So just to balance it out a little bit for you. But I'm saying all that to say this. One of the things people said to me over and over again is what happens in the U.S. affects us. I mean, they're really thinking about this because for them, this has massive implications for what happens in southeastern Europe for the next 20 or 30 years. They said it to me over and over. But here's what I want to tell you. Our church covenant is not about the election. It's about something far bigger than the election. The election is going to happen. It's going to have ramifications. It's important. And I hope that you vote if you're an American citizen. But the fact is, Christians have to decide how we want to live, regardless of who's president. And that's what our church covenant is about. It's about trying to help make clear for us as Christians, as well as for others, what is the nature of discipleship? What kind of relationships does it foster? What kind of morality does it develop? And how do people live as a result of committing themselves to be a part of a local church? 
And one of the things that we do is we seek to follow Jesus' dictates of discipleship by giving ourselves to participation in the life of the church, and as a result of that, giving from our resources to God's work. Let's pray. Again, our Father, as we come to you, we thank you that you give to us such tremendous freedom today to be here and to think about these things and to speak these things. And yet, so often for us in America, our freedom is not matched by an internal sense of liberty that says, I have been set free from sin, and I'm going to live for God. I'm going to live for God freely and openly. I'm going to do it as lovingly as I can. But I'm going to live for God. We pray that you would give to us that spirit. Help us to be the kind of place in which we encourage one another and spur each other on to live that kind of life together. And we pray this in Jesus' name.